Hey everyone, it's David. I'm one of the hosts of a Short White Coat Syndrome, a PA student podcast, and I'm here with my co-host. Amelia Maurer. Hello, everybody. This podcast is uh, is simply about the PA profession itself and uh, just the social issues that, that go on in the medical community for PAs and just providers in general. So we'll, we'll typically have like a format of having guests on and just having a good discussion about uh, the medical field and the social issues it has. Yeah, and so today our, our host today is uh, Mr. William Cole Hepp. Uh, we will leave it up to the introduction to learn a little bit more about him, but we hope that you guys are going to be enjoying the episode. And moving forward, if you guys have any questions for us, concerns, any ideas, please feel free to reach out to us at shortwhitecoatsyndrome at gmail.com. Enjoy. There's no amount of introduction that can really adequately convey his accomplishments, but I'm going to attempt to here in this short little paragraph I wrote down. Soon after graduating from Rutgers PA program in New Jersey, he began the New Jersey State Society of Physician Assistants. In this position, he supported the initial legislation enabling PAs to practice in Connecticut. With regards to his clinical career, he began practicing as a PA in the emergency department at Yale New Haven Hospital, became a primary health care provider afterwards. In 1996, he joined the faculty at Quinnipiac University, where he served as the dean of the university's School of Health Sciences, associate director and academic coordinator, and much, much more. He has been involved at local, state, and national levels, serving within organizations including the Connecticut Academy of PAs, also known as CONAPA, American Academy of PAs, also known as the AAPA, and goal of laying the foundation uh, for the progression of the PA profession and wore many hats. Some of his notable positions include the Connecticut Academy of PA's President, Treasurer, and Secretary, the AAPA President, the PAEA President, and Treasurer, and Secretary. So with that, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate the kind introduction. and makes me feel old, but it's uh, been a long career and a lot, of, a lot has been accomplished, so thanks. Yeah, uh, we're glad we, you could be here, obviously. Um, i got to start, though. What was the White House like? Because I saw that you were you you went to the White House back in, so, yeah. in the '90s. Is that correct? So uh, I was. Uh, it was. A, it's a funny story because I was actually at the AMA meeting in Hawaii, which is six hours behind, and I got a phone call and it said, "Can you hold, please, for the Surgeon General of the United States?" And I was in my pajamas, so talking to the Surgeon General <laughs> of the United States in your pajamas was kind of. Uh, um, just daunting, and he invited me to the White House to for the release of the Surgeon General's first report on mental health. And uh, surprisingly, it was not in the White House; it was in the Executive Office Building next to the White House. So, um, I've been to only to the White House on tours. Um, as a PA, um, I've been there several times, but not uh, in official capacities. But that was a the mental health report, and and our so. There was uh, someone in the Surgeon General's office who was extremely supportive of PAs, and uh, I sat in the very front row next to the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Surgeon General and others, and it was a great, great day for PAs. You always want to be at the table and involved in things like that, and uh, it, was, it was just fabulous. That so. sounds absolutely wonderful. I wish that maybe one day we can say that we could peak in that accomplishment at some point, but... We are excited to have you here um, for our first podcast, and we hope to have a discussion for our listeners that's just going to inform them of what a physician assistant is, what it means to be a PA in today's ever-evolving world of the healthcare system, and with the increased need for uh, medical professionals, especially amidst COVID times. And so with that, and I know this is a loaded question, but what do you think it means to be a PA? Do you think it's a clear definition of providing adequate patient care? Is it a mix of getting involved in advocacy and leadership? Or is there something else that you think makes a great PA? You know, I'd, I'd step back to the, the definition read earlier about the PA. And I think that when you sort of talk about the PA profession from all the things that they can do, um, I think it takes away from the true essence of what makes PA special, which is, as you alluded to, one of two healthcare professionals who practice medicine. PAs and physicians are the only ones who practice medicine. 
Um, and the way we do it, which I've always been impressed with, is with a strong focus on building positive, trusting relationships with patients. I often hear people talk about, oh, the PA spent more time with me. And I don't think that truly happens. I think if you put a clock on the interaction of a physician and a patient and a PA and a patient, it might be the same. But we train PA students to really do great histories, to focus on establishing the relationships with the patient and their family. And then ultimately, you know, I sort of transition that to what I think is my other way of, you know, we're known by PA now mostly. Um, which is patient advocate. I truly believe that that's one of the things that we do really well. Um, and I, you pointed to the generalist, and I think that attracts so many people to the profession. Um, I'm a good example of having changed my medical specialty four times during my career. And if I was a physician, I would have had to go back to do a residency each and every time. And I was able to make a con. You know, that what that allows PAs to do is to not only meet their own needs for fulfillment and different changes, but it also allows us to morph ourselves to meet the growing needs of the nation. Because with 27 months of intense training, you can turn out, you can change things rather rapidly. You mentioned four years of medical school and four to five years of residency. That's nine years before anything could change. Mm -hmm. You know, when the PA profession says there's a need in the nation, we can change in 27 months to address that, which I think is rather special. So, hmm. that's a that's a great point. This this kind of makes me think about it a little bit more too. Now, you you came out earlier on with the PA profession, I would say, uh, yes. well before I've been alive. <laughs> not to date, oh, nice. not, not to date you too much there, <laughs> but with, with that, I I just feel like. It's so interesting because I haven't really interacted with a ton of PAs that have seen a, a transition or a progression of, of a profession like this from almost its creation. So one question I have for you is, what the heck made you decide, I want to be a PA, when that was just such a new profession? Like, you didn't fully know everything about it at that point. Yeah, just like many undergraduates who have an interest in science and want to make and, and really truly care want to do something that's caring, you think what everybody thinks is the healthcare system and what COVID sort of brought that to, to bear is doctors and nurses. And I thought about going to uh, medical school. Um, I was initially a pharmacy major and abandoned that, so I'm a typical <laughs> undergrad, changed majors a couple times. And I was really sort of struggling to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? And I, and I decided maybe I'd go into the laboratory world and work in a pharma for a pharmacy company. And my college roommate, um, Frank Kane, um, was applying to PA school. He was a, a semester, he, he graduated in, uh, hopefully he won't hear this, but um, he was <laughs> actually a, a semester ahead of me, so he was making decisions in December about what he wanted to do. And he applied to first the Columbia Presbyterian Ophthalmology Assistant Program when there was specialty PA programs. And then very quickly when the Rutgers PA program opened, uh, he decided to, to join their very first class. And I was like, well, good luck, have a good life, never heard of it. I don't know what a PA is, but good luck with that. And I went on to do what I was thinking about doing and getting a degree in pharmacology and moving on. And I spent time keeping in touch with him, and we spent a trip driving from New Jersey to Connecticut and talking about all the things he was doing like you guys are doing on rotations and what he was getting to do. Even though PAs were illegal in New Jersey, he was still getting to do a lot. And I said, oh, my God, that's for me. It just seemed, you know, I talk to PA students all the time about knowing yourself on one hand and learning about the profession on the other. And then it feels like a glove, a perfectly fitting glove when you say, oh, this is perfect for me. And it has been perfect for me for 40 years. But it was, you know, many times in my life, serendipity, uh, I believe the universe talks to me at, at times and gives me opportunities if, if I'm paying attention. And that was one that uh, I'm so glad I was paying attention. But it was the early days. My, my AAPA number is 6,177, so I wow. was one of the early PAs for sure. 
That's wonderful. Yeah. It sounds like we have your friend to thank for starting yes. Connecticut yes. PAs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. So that being said, I know you mentioned, you know, our Dave asking the question of why we kind of started this and how you've seen the profession change. And I think to inform our listeners, what you are obviously already know, but the title change, right? So for people listening, the AAPA was under doing research for, I believe, the past three or four years with talking to patients, insurance companies, other healthcare providers to have a better understanding of what a physician assistant can do for, you know, across the board. Um, and it wasn't until last year at the AAPA 2021 conference, or I guess earlier this year, that they decided to vote to change the name to physician associate. Amongst the other options of medical practitioner, practitioner, um, I believe that there were a lot of interesting ones. I luckily had the chance to vote on that with the House of Delegates, which was pretty incredible. But what do you think? Do you think that this is going to change the way that insurance companies, patients, other providers view physician assistance? I know you mentioned PA in your eyes is patient advocate. Do you think that changing it to physician associate instead of physician assistant is going to change the way or improve the way that we're accepted in the medical community? So, I, so first of all, the conversation about changing the name of the profession has gone on since almost the first day the class had graduated from Duke, as you alluded to, in 1967. Um, the original name of the profession was physician associate, right. and the physician community felt like we were too full of ourselves and thinking that we were their associates and they forced us to change the name to assistant um, and it's a name that because of the word assistant really doesn't truly convey the level of a responsibility and autonomy and capability that PAs have for caring for patients um, so the name assistant by itself doesn't accurately reflect us. So we've always been talking about changing the name. Um, then with the growth of medical assistance, as that profession uh, started to grow, most many, many people confused us with medical assistance and, oh, you're the doctor's helper. And it just became so confusing about what we were. But in the days where we were thinking about changing the name, there were two options, physician associate and physician assistant. And there wasn't a belief that the time, energy, money, and the risk to opening up legislation was worth that small change of one word. I truly don't believe that changing our name from physician assistant to physician associate will change patient acceptance or insurance acceptance or regulatory acceptance, that comes from our work individually, patient to patient, being cared for by a PA. Um, but I think it will differentiate us from medical assistance. And I think the time was now, because we were already opening up the legislation because of another initiative of the American Academy of PAs, which was to modernize uh, PA laws. And there was a we were going to open the, if you were just going to open the law to change your name, that's a big risk because bad things can happen in a political process. Um, so I'm not convinced that it's going to change the world. I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled that we didn't pick one of the other alternatives. A, I like that we maintained some relationship with physicians in our name. We need to figure that out. Um, but getting rid of the word assistant um, I think is good and preserving the initials PA, which is what we're known as. We're the number one profession in the nation. Yeah. Why would you change something that you're recognized for at this point? Um, but it, I think there was a, a coming together of a lot of things. And some of the names you mentioned, I don't think would have advanced our under, patient's understanding of us at all. I think it would have <laughs> thoroughly muddied the water. So I'm glad we were able to keep PA. Um, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure practitioner, just, yeah, it, was it, in there. it just does not roll off yeah. the tongue well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we chose not to not to go with that one, for sure. Uh, just kind of uh, talking about that, too, you alluded to the relationship with, with the physician. You said we need to work on that. What, what did you mean by that? So the, 
you know, you mentioned Dr. Eugene Stead. So physicians started the physician assistant profession. And physicians have always been involved in our education. It's We're trained in the medical model, as you mentioned. Um, physicians, which means we're trained essentially in many of the same named courses as, as, as medical students. We're housed many times in medical schools. Um, Quinnipiac happens to be freestanding in, a, in, uh, in, in terms of originally, but now we have a medical school. Um, but the, um, the physician community has always been supportive of us. Some physicians felt that we were a threat, so there's the turf dimension of PAs. But I don't think we can do the PA profession in terms of preceptors for students, classroom education in some parts, employment in other parts, but at the same time, so I think we need to honor that past, but at the same time, you mentioned that the world is changing. And physicians initially employed PAs because they were in solo private practice. The solo private practice model is gone for the most part. Practices are owned by hospitals or healthcare systems. The healthcare system hires a PA, they hire a physician, they say, you two work, it, work together, figure it out. So there's a different commitment to the model. Um, and at the same time, the, the physician in his or her practice has so many productivity demands that the time that they had available in the past to mentor or to be available to provide guidance when needed, or to reflect back to in a, in a system to assure quality, to look, do whatever system assured quality, chart review, whatever it was, patient discussion. That, that, there's no more time for that. Um, and that, that's one dimension. And then finally, when the PA profession started, there were no laws that anticipated that we would be created. So there's many laws that left us out. And then there's other laws that were created for the profession, and they decided to go at the lowest possible risk and say, we're not going to really let them do much in terms of scope of practice because we're not sure what their education and training capabilities are. Over the 50 years of the profession, we have proven that with our education and our commitment to continued quality and continued education, we are well prepared, and we also know our limitations. Um, but the laws need to be brought up to date. Um, and, you know, there are some that advocate for independence from physicians. I'm not in that camp. So. No, I completely agree with you. And um, I know we were both taking part in the conference. You obviously had a much bigger role than I did, as me only being a student. Um, but I think what you just said brings light to the importance of advocacy and leadership and students getting involved, right? Because as much as practicing PAs would like to, I think, believe, at least in my experience, that they are the end-all, be-all, you know, students are the future. We are the next round of PAs coming in. And so with regards to preceptorship and working with um, practicing PAs and physicians, I think it's important that you know students are respected and almost like pushed to continue to advocate for the profession that we have grown to love and are obviously getting involved in. Um, to change the topic a little bit, I know we were talking about this a little bit earlier on um, before we started, but in terms of diversity, right, that is a huge pillar facing PA schools and the PA profession. And I have been involved in a variety of discussions within AAPA and how their statements believe that the issue of diversity starts with the program that is accepting these students. Granted, I think diversity is a multifaceted issue that needs to be addressed. And I'm not even sure if there's a right answer of which way to start with. Do we start with the program in terms of what their desires are for their future students to become PAs? Do we start with, like you had mentioned earlier, lowering the prices to apply to PA school in terms of hopefully reaching a broader range of students from different socioeconomic backgrounds? So I'm not sure if 
that is too loaded of a question, but do you think that there's one pillar within diversity that is most important to address first and foremost to continue to propel our profession forward? I think first the first issue was to recognize the importance of having a diverse workforce um, because I, I think COVID has shown that there are cultures and races and ethnicities in this country that are were left behind uh, by the healthcare system as we face this this crisis and there's a level of distrust of the healthcare system uh, from certain races and ethnicities because of past history and that trust will be built by seeing members of their community uh, taking care of them um, you can't imagine what you can be if you can't see it, is one of my favorite sayings. And I think until the day comes where there's a lot of Hispanic PAs, African-American PAs, American Indian PAs, uh, those who are otherwise uh, underrepresented in medicine, um, it's going to be challenging to get to for, for sixth graders and others to set their sights on being a PA. And that's really where we need to focus our attention. Um, and some of them, I think part of it comes back to the conversation about our name. Um, there's a level of, I want to be a physician because that's the top of the heap. And they think that, you know, maybe being a PA is a step down. There's no respect for that. I've been disrespected in my life. Why would I do that? Um, so I think that we need to do some level of public education about the role and function of PAs to a variety of underrepresented minorities. Uh, and then at the same time, make it easier for individuals to know the path to PA school. Uh, that's what we were talking about earlier. Um, it comes down to um, faculty. Uh, there are not a lot of faculty from diverse backgrounds. Um, we have started to make some progress with uh, traditionally uh, black medical schools, Meharry and others, um, where they've started PA programs. So that's going to make a difference. Um, but the first thing to do was to say this is important. And the accrediting body for PA programs at the urging of the PA Education Association included in their standards, which is what do you expect of a PA program that they have a diversity game plan. It doesn't mean you have to have a number or a percentage. You just need to say, how are you going to increase the diversity and focus the diversity in your PA program? Um, and without a standard, you focus on the thing, on the rules. That What do I need to do to, to maintain being a PA program? And I think that was a good step forward. Um, medicine has you know summer programs and a variety of things. PAs had Project Access, where we went out and and had PAs uh, of uh, you know of color go to um, different high schools and others. I, I still think it's fifth, sixth graders that we need to be reaching to, um, and I think that's where students can make make a role. And uh, we we had some mentor programs um, for health professionals uh, with Quinnipiac students doing some of the high schools and and uh, uh, junior highs in Connecticut. So I think it. You said, is there one thing? No, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, it's multifaceted. And it's, 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 I think the, the simple problems of the world are gone. Virtually all of the problems of the world these days are complex, and they require thoughtful consideration of the options. And this is a great example of that. So, Yeah, that's. I think one thing to add to that, too, especially is what you mentioned, is that the PA profession itself isn't always well known by a lot of people. It doesn't matter what community you're in. I, I'll be on the airplane, you know, and somebody's asking, what are you? I'm like, I'm a PA student. They're like, a personal assistant student? <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, a physician assistant. And, you know, it, it, a lot of it comes down to educating what our profession is. Um, do you have any sort of ideas or ways that you go about educating people what our profession is? Or I, I think that the simple... Um, definition that we talked about earlier and to focus on the things that might get their attention. Um, prescribing. PAs can prescribe in all 50 states and U.S. territories, and they have been given the privilege to prescribe narcotics in most of them. P 
people say, oh, when you look at a healthcare professionals in a hospital, how can you tell the physician or the PA? Oh, they have the stethoscope. Well, everybody has stethoscopes. So the differentiating <laughs> feature is, you know, who can write a prescription? And PAs have been given that, and that, that kind of, oh, aha. And one of two health professionals who practice medicine, aha. And you get to diagnose and decide treatments. You know, really hone in on the message. Um, and then I think it comes down to an interaction with a PA. Um, so in the early days when I was first out, nobody knew who a PA was because they didn't interact with the PA. So for me to try and, from a academic perspective, explain to them was like, I don't get it. I remember my friend talking about, you know, he was a PA for longer than me, and he would try, try and get his mother to understand what he was and what he was doing. And I'm sure you have that experience with, oh, with yeah. your relatives. Absolutely. But it wasn't until she was cared for by a PA that the light bulb went off and she said, oh, now I get it. They're awesome. Yeah. And yet he was doing burn care at Yale New Haven Hospital, was considered by many to be like an attending. And I think it's also important for us to make sure that people do know that we're PAs and PA students when we're providing care, because they might assume because of the quality of care, that oh, you must be a physician. Um, so I think it's always good to make sure they understand you know, that they're being cared for by a PA. Uh, type of thing so yeah I've even been a little challenged with that on my clinical rotations I'll, I'll enter a room and people are like hey doc and I'm like whoa 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 I'm I'm a student call me David I'm a PA student <laughs> yeah so try to clear that up especially but I think a lot of it definitely comes down to you know the quality of care you give ultimately matters the most and if you can show by your actions and show by what you do and a lot of great PA programs and, and great PAs will really represent that well. So making good quality PAs, I think. Yeah, is and, and I think PA, you know, you mentioned earlier the growth in the number of PA programs. And although you said 220, that's because wrong. you blinked. And <laughs> it's actually 277, and I wow. probably blinked, and it might be more than that. Um, and I just found out that, uh, you know, the that, that Hawaii has created a relationship with a PA program for the first time. And in many states, it wasn't until they had a PA program where people like you, who were doing great things in clinical rotations, people said, oh, they're really real, pretty well trained. They're standing up to the medical students in terms of their knowledge. You know, maybe we should hire them for the hospital or for the practice. I remember at the hospital where I worked in occupational medicine, when I started there, they had three PAs. When I left, and, and that was the same true at Yale and Haven when I was first there, there's hundreds of PAs in that system now, probably close to 1,000 PAs in that system. Right. But it was each of us making sure that we took ownership for providing high-quality care because if you take your foot off the gas pedal and don't do a good job, the profession's going to get a bad name. Um, and then, so, and my comment about Hawaii also points to once there's a PA program and some traction, often that leads to positive changes in the state law or an availability of the state law. I grew up in New Jersey. I graduated in 1979. It was illegal to be a PA in New Jersey until 1993 because of misperceptions about our capabilities and our education. And Mississippi, the number 50 state in every metric for health care, access, and quality, mm -hmm fought to have PAs come into that state because of turf. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. That is um, so state laws, as they embrace it, um, makes a difference too. So it's, again, it took some time. We're 50 years old, but we're still very young. Yeah. And there's a lot, a lot of work to be done. And that goes back to your earlier comment about you know, advocacy and the role of students in that too, because yeah. I agree with that 100. percent I think we're just we're just getting started. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. Um, you mentioned kind of like the aha moment in terms of the profession, and I think, it, at least what I can say, and I think I could speak for a lot of my classmates, is something that made the profession of a PA different from an MD is like the change of specialty, the lateral mobility that we had that you touched on earlier. I mean, you said you had four different positions. Um, 
how was switching from profession to profession? How well was it accepted? You know, telling us a little bit more about that. So my first position was in the surgical section of the emergency room at Yale New Haven Hospital. And I did that for four years. And I can tell you, working in an inner city emergency room, I learned the most I have ever learned in the shortest period of time. Um, and you're either in emergency medicine for forever or sometimes a year. And I, after four years, I said, I'm going to do something else. And I went into a prepaid group practice in internal medicine. And that wasn't a huge leap. But there were people who said, oh, you're in the surgical section of the emergency room. What do you know about internal medicine? So I actually had to go moonlight in the emergency room at Danbury Hospital, where I was caring for medicine patients and surgery patients mm -hmm. to, to, to open that door a little bit. My, my change in specialties hasn't been like going from pediatrics to neurosurgery to it's, <laughs> it's been within a relatively narrow area. So I went from internal medicine to family medicine, not a huge leap. Um, my last job was in occupational medicine, which is applied orthopedics, which was really my foundation in the emergency room. I was doing clinical research on a, uh, uh, a study that was looking at creating a, a, an approach to avoiding x-rays in people who had arm and leg injuries. So I was spending most of my time doing orthopedics, so I felt very comfortable. But it was really great after a bunch of years to say, you know, I would like to do something different and not have to go back and get a credential or do additional training. Part of it is, you know, our, continue, our commitment to continuous uh, education with CME, 100 hours every two years. You can focus some of your CME on uh, getting knowledge to prepare you for the leap to a different specialty or getting uh, knowledge after you make that leap. And, it, and it, it, I also benefited from significant mentorship from physicians and my PA colleagues as well. Uh, so that makes a difference too. If you're going into a practice that's never had a PA and you're by yourself, that mm -hmm. switch would probably be perhaps more challenging. But it is, I do not want to do anything to mess with that generalist education and the ability of PAs to move from specialty to specialty. It is, it's important for each individual to keep them doing what, to keep energized by their job, but it's also important for us as a profession because we can, when the medical, when the residency work hour thing came in, more of us went into, into surgery and became surgical house staff because the hospitals would have had nobody caring for the patients if PAs didn't say, hold up their hand and say, you know, we can do that. We have generalist training, and we can care for those patients. And it worked out really well. And, uh, you know, when the Clinton Health Plan was coming up and we were thinking about increased primary care, there was a significant focus on that. And, you know, with Obamacare and increasing access, I just think there's plenty of work for PAs to do in every specialty, and we are in every specialty in every setting, which is, you know, fabulous for our profession. So, Yeah. I think that's a good good segue too into talking a little bit about uh, the the dreaded three letter uh, acronym OTP optimal team practice. What do you see about so so for our listeners a little bit OTP also known as optimal team practice is is essentially the progression of the of PAs and nurse practitioners so, so in a sense uh, becoming more independent and less reliant on, in, in a PA's case, a supervising physician. But for nurse practitioners, they really haven't had a supervising physician to have to ever really work with in the, in the first place, unless you're in a practice group. What, what do you feel about the progression of our profession? Do you like the direction it's going? What, what do you think about that? So there's four parts to optimal team practice, and the one that continues to confuse me about what is the intent of the profession is how to evolve our, our relationship with physicians. I, I said earlier, we clearly need to make it so that laws are modernized because physicians have less time to serve in some of the roles. Um, but for us to say we want, no one is independent in healthcare anymore. So for us to aspire to independence it's just ludicrous. And for us to burn bridges with a profession that has been at our side and, 
and helped nurture and grow the profession and continues to support the profession in many ways. To burn that bridge through anything that we do doesn't make any sense. But we do need to change the laws that require physicians to do certain onerous, time-consuming, time-wasting tasks like co-signing charts. The real key for physicians is to have trust in the PA that they're working with that for the population of patients that they're caring for, that the PA has the education and training to meet the needs of those patients safely. And the Institute of Medicine has said for the healthcare system, practicing at the top of your education and training, whether you're a nurse or a PA or any other healthcare professional, makes the most sense. You should not be constrained by laws and regulations that don't allow you to do things that you are perfectly capable of doing. The system can't afford, can't afford that. Um, and we need to have a system that assures that looking back that we provided quality of care. And, and the physicians are the highest, the most extensively trained me- member of the healthcare team. You pointed to that in your, in your introduction. To have them involved in the quality evaluation of PAs really was extremely beneficial. And creating a system that allows them to still do that makes sense to me. And while a PA who, you know, as I said earlier, we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know and we know where to get help is all about knowing your limitations, but it was built into the system to know where to get help. You worked with your collaborating physician, that's the new term, not supervising physician, and they sometimes, you poked your head out the door and asked them a question. You sometimes poked your head out the door, asked them to come in, or you scheduled the patient for the next visit to see your physician colleague. The patient didn't need to leave the practice. Their chart didn't need to be bundled up or a a referral note created. You knew what happened the next time you saw the patient. It was built into the system in a way that was beneficial for the patient for you to get assistance. I want to preserve all those things while at the same time modernizing our relationship and allowing for PAs to take leadership of, of teams. Um, I think OTP you know, talked about a variety of things that made sense um, in terms of um, you know, other aspects of it, but it, really the one that I continue to struggle with is the physician-PA relationship. And there were people at the House of Delegates who wanted to take physician out of our oath and take physician out of other aspects. And I really fought, you know, you said I was involved. I was involved. I was. <laughs> I do remember it very I, clearly. You know, I was, uh, that, was a, that was a line in the sand kind of battle for me. I completely um, agree with you. And do I think that the world is perfect in our relationship with physicians? Absolutely not. Do I think that our, our legal relationship with physicians is perfect? Absolutely not. Um, and there are some states that are not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, as it said. They're improving that relationship, and they're doing it without going, thumbing their nose and saying, we need to be independent. I think we need to clearly communicate. Speaking of advocacy, we need to make it sure we're sending signals to physicians that either are intended, and I'm talking about organized medicine, that are either intended that we are going for independence and we don't need you anymore, or we are unintentionally sending those signals uh, by our name change and by OTP. And we need to be crystal clear with them what what it is we're trying to do and to try and engage them in those conversations. Um, And I don't think we're sufficiently doing that at the moment. Uh, So we'll see. Yeah, I would have Um, to agree with you. I mean, like you said, I remember that conversation very clearly. (laughs) Um, And I was glad someone was speaking up to it, right? Because some of these members of AAPA or those that were involved in the House of Delegates, you know, this whole discussion has been about where we started, where we came from, and who we are today. And you've alluded to it multitude of times that we were created by physicians to assist them um, and collaborate with them, I guess is the better term. Um, And by removing physician from our oath, from our name, it just furthers the line between us and the relationship between us and physicians. 
I do think that some people could get on a little bit of a power trip, for lack of better terms, of wanting to have that independence. I do think it's important, like you said, though, that nobody is independent in the medical world at this point. Everybody relies on everybody. I think that sometimes, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this, is that we get lost in the matter of who am I working with, who's supervising me, who's collaborating with me, and we lose track of what's important and why we're all here, and it's the providing adequate patient care. Because at the end of the day, regardless of what letters are behind your name, that's what we're all there to do. And I do think that, in my personal opinion, sometimes that can get lost to all of the bigger discussions and the, I guess, drama, for lack of better terms, that can surround the profession and our name and moving forward. Yeah, and I think, you know, you you said we need to keep our focus on the patient. And in the early days of the American Academy of PAs, we often said if it's good for the if it's good for the patient and may not be something that is absolutely good for PAs we need to focus on what's good for the patients and what i think we've done as a profession in attracting people like you to the profession is we find people who it's not about ego it's a humble desire to serve patients right. and it's not picking the profession cuz it's I have a big title or a big house or big prestige. Um, it's frustrating at times that people don't know who we are and what, and that physicians and nurses get all the, all the attention. But you know in your heart that you're doing great things for patients. But at the same time, the other thing that we're committed to is team practice. And when we say it's all about me, it ain't about the patient, and it ain't about my role as part of a team, I think we've totally lost focus on what's important. Um, and the, the hierarchical stuff really doesn't have a place in American medicine anymore. And that's, you know, physicians feeling like they're king or queen or anybody else. And uh, I think, you know, the COVID proved that there are many people at various levels of the healthcare system who were critical to our success mm. in and. I will never underestimate the role of the housekeeper in terms of providing a safe environment for us all to practice. And that behind-the-scenes respiratory therapist was key to doing this. Um, so, you know, if it, it comes down to, you know, we, we have uh, interprofessional healthcare education here at Quinnipiac and valuing each, understanding each role, member's roles and valuing and respecting them is something I think we've always done as PAs. And I th I'm concerned that we're getting away from that and it's about ego. And, you know, part of that is comes from a true problem, which is competitiveness in the job market and misinformation and people sharing untruths, which is real easy in this day and age to accomplish. Um, but but we, can't, we can't go into the muck. We have to keep the high road um, and say we can win this battle uh, for an important role in the healthcare system by, by continuing to stay true to our values of team practice, patient care, high quality, access to care, sensitivity to cultures, understanding of the family and the workplace and the home environment, all the things we do, uh, and, and, not even, not, and not just that, just focusing more on health and, and prevention than one patient at a time. You know, the, the healthcare system cannot survive with just being illness medicine. So I think we're doing all those things right. And for us to say, oh, that, let's abandon all that stuff because we, we could do better for ourselves. That's that's just wrong in my opinion. But Selfish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah I, I even would say to the PA profession itself, really it the training model allows for you to have that, that capacity to, to learn other people's perspective in the healthcare field. For example, you know, almost everybody that gets into PA like a PA program, PA school has to have a certain amount of 
patient care contact hours prior to even applying. Um, I know some schools require up to 4,000 hours. Quinnipiac requires 2,500 for their outside applicants. Those hours are so valuable to learning about the profession, not only the PA profession, but about other people's profession. I worked as a nursing assistant. I have such an appreciation for all the techs, the patient care techs out there, the, the medical assistants, the nursing assistants out there, nurses, because I, I worked in a capacity where I was literally on those front lines of, of seeing that perspective. I had a firsthand perspective of what that was like. And I think in a way that gives me an advantage to be a better PA in the future because I'll respect and I'll have a better understanding of my colleagues. So, Absolutely. I think honestly with that, I just had a light bulb go off about why <laughs> <laughs> PAs are so awesome, right? It's applying to PA school. Yes, we look at these hours sometimes as a burden, right? Like, oh my gosh, I have to work this long before I even apply to PA school. But you brought up a great point, right? It's like, I know from talking with friends and other colleagues of those applying to medical school, the patient contact experience is not valued in their application process. There is more emphasis placed on research, in my understanding. And so, like with what you said, our hours, the amount of professions that are accepted as hours prior to going into PA school. I mean, they range from physical therapist to physical therapy aide to respiratory therapist to RN to PCA. I mean, it spreads so vast across all of medicine. And I just thought it was a nice light bulb that it gave us a bigger appreciation for the team that we work on, right? Because we pride ourselves as PAs of working with a team, like you mentioned, um, interprofessionalism. I think it's important and, I mean, it's vital to our career to work on a team and know how to be a good member, whether it is supervising others or having the humbleness to ask for help. So I do think that with regardless of our training, just the aspect of getting into school really gives us a good appreciation of everything else around us. Yeah, and and just many people look at the prerequisites for PA school. You know, once you discover the profession, you are so excited and can't wait to do it. (laughs) And they look at these uh, prerequisites, whether, you know, it's not, I mean, most people have the course prerequisites are challenging at times, but the direct patient contact as a checkbox and a hurdle to accomplish. If you look at it, as you said, which is, I need to understand not only the healthcare team and the role of the PA, but if you learn, if you see patients with diabetes and then later learn about diabetes, it's mm-hmm. not a, I don't even have anything to hang this knowledge on. Um, so it makes a difference there. And the other thing that I wanted to point to that we haven't talked about is the service dimension of the prerequisites for people like mm-hmm. programs like Quinnipiac. You are being an, you are s- seeking to be part of an altruistic profession, serving others. Mm-hmm. If you have, do not have a track record of having an interest in and a, a desire to serve others, well, then I don't want you in the profession. Um, so community service. And then, you know, we've talked about advocacy and leadership. I mean, seeing those kernels of uh, leadership in applicants to my program gives me great hope for the future of my profession. We talked about advocacy of students. You're a student for 27 months. So you are part of my profession pretty darn fast. And and as some people like me retire, I feel great comfort in knowing that there are people who are going to take up the baton and advocate to change laws or uh, to make sure that our voice is at the table, um, to, to do the hard work of volunteering. You know, lives are very busy these days. So to Join and be a member and spend, a, you know, 100 bucks or 185 bucks. Some people make a choice not to do that, which I never understood. But to volunteer to actually be a leader or in some capacity really is necessary, and, I've, and I honor it when I see it. So I'm glad we try to create some leaders like you all in, in doing that. So Yeah, and you alluded to this earlier, too, about having those interactions with patients where they say, yeah, I saw the PA, and they were great. I've I've had interactions with patients too tell me about their experiences with PAs and saying, wow, they're so awesome. As a matter of fact, that feels like they take more time to listen to me. I see how courteous they are to the staff that they're around, um, X, Y, Z, all those sort of things. Really, I think 
are all embedded into our training so that we can be that that person in in our profession really yeah no. I don't think it's that physicians do it worse but we really value it and I think there's some element of physicians put still putting a patient still putting physicians on pedestals and not being willing and being afraid to see be seen to be stupid and so they won't ask him questions and they see you as approachable because that's the kind of people we accept and that's the what the training brings out um, and I think that plays an element too so it's not just oh PAs are great and physicians aren't I think there's a whole bunch of dimensions that go into that and one of them is how do patients respond to PAs who are trained to first and foremost develop a trusting relationship so. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Completely, and like we said, we all we're always going back to the patient at the first and foremost. They are the priority, and so if we can give them and provide them with an experience that makes them leave the room saying that was a great interaction with my provider, whether that is a PA or whether that is a physician, I think that's what we all are aiming to do, and that's why we're here today having this discussion with you to learn about someone who, like we have said, who's seen the transition of our profession and still probably none of us will see the second half of it because I think it's just gonna be continuously growing and evolving and improving. I think it's just gonna be important that we keep the patient at the forefront of all of our minds moving forward. Yeah, and just to sort of build on that, you know, we talked about the commitment of physicians and the physician PA team. There are so many uh, studies of quality of care delivered by physician assistants. And you pointed to how patients value. I didn't do my job by me. I did it as part of a physician PA team with the physician mentoring me, Mm -hmm. providing me some feedback, guidance, answering questions when I couldn't solve a problem, just being, and and sometimes I helped them. You know, I was good at at certain things and, and helped in the practice. So I, you know, it's not just all about one individual. It's what did we, how did, PAs is, with our commitment to the team, really are providing high quality care that I think is valued by patients. And that's growing and growing, you know, as I said earlier, number one profession by U.S. News and World Report. And it's not number one healthcare profession. It's number one profession. So you got, <laughs> yeah. you got, you got to be pretty proud of that for sure. Yeah. And you even talked about that too, of just uh, simply saying that, the, the physician trains us uh, in, in a lot of aspects as well. So uh, that relationship is just so quintessential to being a PA. I mean, yeah. that's why it's in our title. Um, we just have enough time for maybe a couple more questions here. Okay. But uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be the pessimist and I'll let Amelia be the optimist here. Um, <laughs> Good cop, bad cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. So what are what are your fears for our profession? What are what are you afraid of happening with our profession? So I think. You know, we've, I think we've talked about it a number of times, which is there are certain values and traditions of the profession that are timeless, that go back to the beginning of the profession. And if we stop focusing on the patient as primary, if we somehow change systems that the commitment to high-quality care changes, that... Um, we have talked about meaningful collaboration with physicians, however that's managed. Um, you know, people have talked about lengthening the PA program. It's a competency-based education. It's a lot crammed into 27 months, but I think we've, we're focusing on the right things to prepare people. And I don't think expanding the number of years to get a doctorate or something else will increase my make me a better clinician, which I think is our number one focus. Um, We talked about generalist education, maintaining that. If that's, you know, people, I've had conversations with people, you know, that have said, oh, you know, a PA in dermatology, you know, if the physician can't solve the problem in their practice and they're sending them to the dermatologist and they're just seeing a PA, um, how can that PA solve the problem if the physician in the primary care practice couldn't? Well, they're specializing in dermatology. And two of my colleagues, I referred to them earlier in the burn team at, at Yale. It was a physician assistant-led team. 
Everybody thought they were attendings, but they were experts in the care of patients with burns. And PAs can become experts in all sorts of things. A good friend of mine was an expert in endoscopic vein harvesting for, car he was one of the first people to do endoscopic vein harvesting for cardiac bypasses. Um, so getting credentials and forcing us into specialties and avoid, I, I worry about that. And then the big one I think is ego. If it, if it becomes all about me instead of the needs of the patient and the needs of the nation, I think we're doomed. Um, yeah. So. Hopefully know, we'll never get there. Yeah, but I, I think we need, need to constantly be reminded of our values. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people say, well, that was when we were baby PAs. Now we're full grown and we can take care of ourselves and it's our profession and we don't need others telling us what to do. Physicians are still involved in ARC-PA. Physicians are still involved in NCCPA in a meaningful, positive way. And they're not telling us what to do. They're just giving us a different perspective. Um, but there are many people who say, you know, let's just cut all ties with physicians because it's holding us back. And I, I don't believe that. I don't think so either. I think we need yeah. to start viewing it as something that can only continue to propel us forward. Um, so Dave did say I have to be good cop, so <laughs> <laughs> hopefully I can end it on more of a positive note. Um, but it, I guess just something interesting, like is there one aspect of your career or patient that you saw or a physician that you worked with or another PA that you worked with where you just like had that moment of re-realization where you could sit back in your chair and say, wow, this is, this is why I chose PA. This is why I chose this career and I am so happy to be standing where I am. You know, as I look back on my career, there are a number of interesting things that I got to do and a number of physicians with whom I was collaborating and other members of the team. Um, probably, um, so I don't want to single anyone out, uh, but I think it was when I worked in a prepaid, what I liked the most was working in a prepaid group practice. And what that, it, today we have PPOs and HMOs. Well, in 1970, 1983, I went to work for one in New Haven, mm -hmm. and it was an idea before its time. It did not survive because patients weren't ready to be part of a, quote, panel. But I worked with two physicians. It was two physicians and me. And we had a panel of patients, and it was my job to provide urgent care. Mm -hmm. And we just worked so closely together um, as a team. And I think the patients, there were times when patients said, you know, I wish I got to see my physician more, but they weren't saying bad things about me. <laughs> it was, I don't understand this model and why you're make, but I really like the PA. Um, and I really liked that model of there was no paperwork. Um, we had charts and everything else, but there was a lab down the hall that the patients didn't have to pay for. There was x-ray down the hall the patients didn't have to pay for. There was a pharmacy that was down the hall. There was eye care. And all of the and specialist care came in. And it was really, we were responsible for caring for those patients and making sure they stayed well and quickly addressing their needs if they became sick. So it wasn't so much about the physicians I work with, but I love that model. It's like a one-stop shop. And it was perfect. Mm -hmm. And it was a great place to be a PA because they really valued, and they knew it was cost-effective to have a PA as part of the team. If it was all physicians, the salary of the physician at that time would have been significantly more, and that would have cost the practice more, and it would have made it harder to be competitive in the price that the patients were paying for that insurance. For that um, so, but probably my most fun physician was my my last one, which was uh, in occupational medicine. Um, we just really clicked together, and it was one where I was actually the supervisor. I hired him, so on an employment basis, their PAs can own practices, and they can be the boss of the practice. But when I saw patients, it was still he was guiding how I delivered my patient care. Um, so I like the, the
the nuances of that relationship. And I just liked him as a person. He he truly valued PAs, and 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 we worked well together. Wow. Yeah. I, I, that's just such a great model, and I I hope for really healthcare to kind of go back into a direction like that. For one, I don't really want to do a lot of paperwork, so yeah, <laughs> I think that's the we waste a lot of money on paperwork, right? And and paying intermediaries to to run the the insurance system and other parts. So. Right. Absolutely. Well, that that's all the time we have uh, for, for this discussion. But um, just a huge, huge thank you for, for coming on to, to the to the podcast here and just just talking with us. We really appreciate it. It was uh, great to be part of a podcast. This is a first for me. And I appreciated the thoughtful questions and the opportunity to talk about important issues. Yeah, of course. Hopefully the first of many. And I think if our listeners don't want to be a PA at the end of this conversation, then they definitely did not listen closely enough. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So thank you. Thank you. Wow, what an awesome interview. Uh, just a huge shout out to Professor Bill Colehap. I'll just keep calling him Professor because I, I can't see him out of that context now. But what a huge, huge honor to have him on here. And just a huge shout out to him for, for taking the time to come on and, and listen. I hope you guys learned a lot about what a PA is and what we can do in the healthcare professional world. So just a reminder, if you guys have any questions or concerns, feel free to reach us at shortwhitecoatsyndrome at gmail.com. And this is a production of the Quinnipiac Podcast Studio. Thanks to everybody for making this uh, podcast put together and, and making it work. And remember to keep breathing.